Well, good morning. Again, my name is Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I get to share with you all this morning from our text in this book of John. We've been studying John, as uh, Jack mentioned, these last few weeks, uh, and we're in the midst of a sermon series on Jesus's I am statements. And last week, we studied uh, the statement, I am the light of the world. But this week, the passage is a little more obscure. I'm not sure how many of you might have remembered that one of these I am statements is I am the gate for the sheep. Um, To be honest, I might have been a little like the Pharisees when I first read this passage because I was a little stumped and not quite sure where Jesus is going with this particular part. Next week, we get to I am the good shepherd. And actually, we're kind of doing this in a two-part series on sheep Um, because Jesus is talking to us as sheep, which I would argue is maybe one of the more humbling metaphors in scripture for us as human beings. But I'm going to break us in today because I'm not going to talk to us quite as sheep yet. I'm going to talk to us this morning. Jesus is going to be speaking to us as shepherds, as fellow sheep herders, if you will. Next week, Jack's going to take us more thoroughly into this idea of what it means to be sheep and to have Jesus as our shepherd. So that's a little bit of context for where we're going this morning. And would you pray with me before we begin as uh, we ask God, God, would you give us understanding? These Pharisees listening to Jesus, God, couldn't, couldn't quite get it. Would you help us to, uh, by your spirit, be, be open to understanding your word to us today? God, would you give us uh, even a wisdom that's deeper than our human brains might naturally be able to understand as we read your text for us today? Amen. And just in case you're wondering, this is the same passage where some translations have Jesus saying, I am the door, which is why we have a door over here. I liked the gate metaphor, and I'll kind of tell you why. But I just, so you know, the Greek word can be translated door or gate. The Greek word is thura, and it just means entrance or portal. And so gate and door, both right. But I like this word gate. And so, uh, and part of that is because I'm a very linear person, so I like think metaphors that are very consistent. And to me, I think more of sheep going through a gate than going through a door. So that is partly why. But also, I feel like the word gate is something maybe all of us understand a little more quickly. Door can mean a lot of different, there's a lot of different kinds of doors out there. A gate almost always is with an outdoor fence or wall, maybe. And I grew up with a fence in my backyard. With a, I was lucky enough to grow up in a backyard in a suburb of Portland, Lake Oswego. And it wasn't very big, but it had one of those tall, wide-paneled fences all the way around it. Especially as a kid, you can't see through or over. And so I grew up in this kind of safe-feeling backyard, right? It was a great backyard. My dad had built a tree house in it, in our one tree. And uh, my parents put a sandbox in our backyard when we were little, and when we got older, a basketball hoop on our shed. And it was, it was just ours, right? As a kid, you're not necessarily comparing it, and so it felt perfect. And we had one point of entry into our backyard through a tall gate right on the side of the house. And I'll, I'll never forget, as I was thinking about this this week, the sound that latch would make when it would open. It usually meant when that latch opened, my dad was home. He would almost always come through the back door to get to his office because it was right off the 
house there. And we, when we heard that latch open, my sister and I would usually stop whatever we were doing and run to see who was opening the latch or who was opening the gate because it was my dad or a neighbor kid or a friend, almost always. But one night, when I was old enough to be babysitting my sister for a few hours while my parents were out, I'll never forget hearing that latch open when I wasn't expecting it, right? And it was the scariest sound suddenly I'd ever heard. And I remember telling my sister to head to her room for a minute and creeping up to like look through the slats in our um, blinds to see who was in the backyard. And our motion sensor light turned on and the back door handle starts turning. And of course, it's my uncle coming in who worked with my dad at the time and was trying to get into his office, trying not to bug anyone. He just needed something quickly. <sighs> okay, it was fine. But I share this because gates have a purpose still in our lives today. This isn't always true with some of the metaphors we find in scripture. And certainly we aren't running into sheep every day, probably, in our daily lives in Seattle. But this idea of a gate is something we still use. They allow us to build fences or walls, but still invite people to come inside of those. They alert us when someone's entering who we aren't expecting. They can be propped open, they can be shut and locked, they can just be latched. And so I guess I like the metaphor. That's what this story is about. Uh, what is it, but what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the gate? And this is what I want us to ponder today. And before we really get into the details and into your outline of answering that question, I want to give us some context. It's almost always helpful to look at the context of a text, right, of, of Scripture. And we ask questions like, who is it being written to or spoken to? What was going on? When? And if possible, we try to answer why. Why this passage? Why, this, this be, why is this being said or written at this time to these people? You can't always know that. But I'm going to try to answer some of those questions for us. And to do that, we're going to go backwards a chapter in John. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 9. Because I'm going to paraphrase this story again for us. This is a, a familiar story, but it is crucial to understanding what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the gate. So, in verse 1 of chapter 9, we encounter Jesus walking with his disciples. And by the way, I'm going to paraphrase this. So if you're following along in your Bibles, it's not going to look exactly like this. They come across, a, his, he and his disciples come across a blind man who's sitting and begging. This blind man is an outcast. He's been blind from birth. And so he's been literally outcast by society because they have understood his blindness to be a mark of sin on his family. And Jesus' disciples see this man, and they decide this might be a good opportunity to ask Jesus a few questions about the nature of sin. And so the disciples point him out to Jesus and say, Teacher, who caused this guy's blindness? Was it his own sin, or was it the sins of his parents that are responsible? And Jesus, in true Jesus style, sort of rejects the premise of the question and says, neither, he's blind, so that God can work through him and through his life. And then Jesus kneels down, and he spits on the ground, and picks up his saliva along with some dirt, and makes a mud cake. And then he puts the mud on the blind guy's eyes, and tells him to go wash it off. That's all he says. And the man does just what Jesus tells him to, and he's healed. He goes home seeing, the text says. So this is a pretty great story so far. A blind man has been healed by Jesus' spit. But the relevant part actually kind of comes after that piece. Because the neighbors have started to get 
pretty curious about how this man they've known their whole lives is now suddenly received sight. And so like good nosy neighbors, they start asking questions and the blind man tells them straight up what happened to him, what Jesus did. They're so stunned when he tells them that the neighbors decide they need help understanding how this could have happened. And so they take the man who's now not blind, but I'm probably going to continue to refer to him as the blind man because we don't have another name for him. They take the blind man to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are basically the ultra-religious Jews of the time, leaders in the Jewish community. And when the Pharisees hear the story, they pick up on one little tiny detail that the text also hasn't mentioned up until now, that Jesus made this mud cake and then healed this man on the Sabbath. Now, according to Jewish law, you could save a person's life on the Sabbath if they were literally about to die. But anything short of that, and you had to wait until it was no longer the Sabbath. So, for example, a doctor could administer CPR to you if you weren't breathing. But if you broke your leg, your doctor would have to wait until Monday to put a cast on. Or, the, or Sunday, I guess. Sabbath was on Saturday. And before we get too judgy about this rule... <laughs> Keep in mind, this was a way to protect the medical professionals in the village or town of having to miss out on Sabbath after Sabbath because they were dealing with people's minor injuries and emergencies. So it was, it was a good rule, maybe, in its theory. Anyways, to make a long story shorter, the Pharisees are very concerned about Jesus having done a healing on the Sabbath. And so they question the blind man. And then they question the blind man's parents, and then they question the blind man again. All in order to figure out whether A, Jesus is a dangerous sinner who's leading people astray, or B, Jesus might actually be the Messiah. They're trying to figure that question out. And after listening to the blind man's story for the second time, they decide Jesus is A, the dangerous sinner. And so they literally, the blind man doesn't agree and starts to argue with them, and he says, Jesus must be from God, or he would never have been able to do this amazing thing in my life. And the Pharisees, in response, throw the man out of the synagogue, essentially saying, you have no part of us and our faith. So where the passage picks up, I think I've caught us up, Jesus has heard about all of this that has just happened with the Pharisees throwing out this man he just healed. You can imagine he's not um, too pleased. With, this, with these religious leaders. And so he finds them, and he turns the table on them, and tells them they're the ones guilty of sin. They're the ones who cannot see. And this is the very thing they most want to be, is to be the ones who see, the ones who know it all, the ones who are most aware of who God is. And Jesus is telling him they're the very opposite, that they are blind. And that's where chapter 10 begins. Jesus is now speaking to the Pharisees as these woefully misguided leaders, not only those who are blind, but who are now blindly leading others. And he clarifies his point using the metaphor of shepherds with sheep. And to try to clarify his point, uh, he's essentially pointing to the fact that as shepherds, they're not keeping their sheep safe. They're not keeping them fed. They're not helping them to be obedient to their true owner. And that therefore, these Pharisees are acting more like thieves and strangers than shepherds. And if we're going to extend that metaphor to us today, 
we can see that Jesus is speaking to us in our role as leaders and shepherds of people, people who have influence in other people's lives, particularly as those who might profess that we believe in Jesus Christ. And I would bet all of us are leaders in some area of life. We're moms or dads. We're friends, mentors, coworkers, or business owners or managers, or we might just be aunts and uncles, or we might be even just a leader for one hour on a Sunday morning in a Sunday school class, but in some area of life, we need to know what it looks like to be shepherds who know where abundant life is. That's the end. That's verse 10. Jesus says, I've come for abundant life. So we have to be shepherds who know where abundant life is found and how to lead other people to that life. And we do that through the gate that is Jesus and only that way. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to use this shepherd. We're going to dive full into this metaphor. So get ready. There's three responsibilities we're looking at this morning that apply to any good shepherd. And the first is to create places of safety and shelter. The second is to provide access to food and water. And the final one is to, it's a little more nuanced, but cultivate obedience to the shepherd's voice. So that's where we're going. To start out, we're going to look at one of the shepherd's primary roles, which was to create a place of safety in the desert for their sheep. And to do this, most shepherds would build a sheep pen or multiple sheep pens in places that were easily defensible from predators. They were in caves, they were on hillsides, but any, any place that could be defended. And then the pen would be closed in with one point of entry. And I know most of us are not super familiar with sheep. I was actually like, man, it'd be great to know a shepherd for these sermons, but I don't know any. So... And if you are one, you should tell me afterwards if, you have never, if you've ever shepherded sheep. But uh, a good correlation for us today, and this might make some of us cringe, but a good correlation for some of us today is daycares. We have these precious kids in our care that we often are sending to daycare. And as I've learned through working with Becca and Sonia before her as our children's ministry directors, we need to keep them safe. <laughs> and the way to do that is to keep one point of entry into a class to make sure that they are not going to be, in a worst case scenario, taken or harmed. And so we have people who enter must have ID. Anyone who tries to enter by way of hopping over a fence or climbing in through a window would be considered suspicious at the very least, right? Yeah. Uh, so this is the same general scenario, if it helps us with the metaphor. Sheep were precious in Jesus' days. Shepherds could get fired over losing one sheep, much like a childcare worker could. And so think about that as how important this role was. And how does that translate to us? What does it mean to be shepherds in the kingdom of God? And care about the safety and security of people. And actually, this is a concept that's kind of challenging. Churches over the centuries have struggled with what this means. How to answer that question. For some, churches have set up a very strict set of doctrines and rules and accountability and discipline structure to make sure that the, the doctrine of the church is kept safe. They've interpreted it that way. Other churches have applied it to literal physical safety. When I was in the Philippines, churches had armed guards outside because actual physical safety is how they interpreted this idea. 
Others have said, you know what? We don't need any safety or security. Everyone's welcome. Doesn't matter what you do, who you are. Just come in. We have no fences. And I actually think all of these are problematic in some way or can be problematic. And so to mor this morning, I actually want to reject the premise of the question a little bit and shift our paradigm to how we're talking about safety. Because I think the safety of the people of God is not found in physical barriers. It's not a literal fence. It's not a literal gate. The sheep needed a fence to help us remember so that they could sleep at night without fear of enemies. And the shepherds needed a fence at night so they could sleep without fear that their sheep would be harmed. So how does this translate to our life with Christ? I think the safety we can invite people to experience is the safety of knowing unconditional love, of knowing your worth to the Almighty God. And it can sound squishy. It can sound a little like a fluffy answer. I honestly believe this is the most powerful kind of security we can ever experience. Because what causes us anxiety as human beings and fear and harm? It can be lack of our basic needs being met, food and water and clothes. It's also a fear of losing people we love, fear of losing the things we love, fear of not being cared for, either emotionally or physically, fear of loss. And so the safety and security that is found in Christ, when you go through the gate that's Christ, it's not financial security. It's not a certain relationship security or status. It's not home ownership. It's not even physical safety. It's the knowledge that you will be loved and cared for no matter what when you go through that gate. And when we walk in that truth, there's actually nothing in this life that can truly harm us. That's what Jesus promises. And actually, there's a neurologist, Sigmund Freud, kind of, um, you know, he's known for certain things, but he's a neurologist and psychologist, and he observed famously how bold one gets when one is sure of being loved. How bold one gets when one is sure of being loved. A neurologist noticed the power that love has for us as human beings. And the Pharisees in that story I told, they didn't know this kind of love. They believed that any misstep with their law would cause them to be outcast. And so there was no safety in the path that they were leading people down. There's no safety in, in believing that any misstep and you're out, right? It's a fear-based living. And the security in knowing Christ's love for us and living as though he is constantly desiring to care for us, it's an amazing sense of, of safety. And think about this. If a shepherd is anxious about there being safety, the sheep actually notice. They will pick up on a shepherd's anxiety. And if a nanny or a parent gets up and locks a door because they heard a noise, many of you who are parents might know this, they, the kids will pick up on it, right? And so if we as a church are people who live in fear, fear of judgment like the Pharisees, or fear of physical harm, or fear of financial collapse, fear of failure, I mean, that list can go really long, then we'll be people who smell of fear to our neighbors and children. And the very people, the very safety we proclaim to have in Christ will look kind of benign. 
and in the meantime will likely have led people to a false security, a security that lies in something other than where we've said it does, in through that gate of Christ. So this is our first job, I believe. It's to model and embody the safety we find in Christ, and that it's not in our financial health, and it's not in our job status. It's not in our marriage status. It's not even in what we think we know. And I wanted to stop here for just a moment before we move on. Because we find the Pharisees in chapter 9 over and over again touting what they know. That they know, they think they know exactly who God is. It's a source of security for them. And what happens? They miss the Son of God right in front of them. And it's why Jesus is healing on a Sabbath day, a day they, they know to be only for rest. It's so confusing to them. They're so sure. They know exactly what God wants. They're unable to see the Son of God. And so we think about how we lead people to safety. One of the ways we do this is by finding rest and admitting we don't know it all. We don't have our faith entirely figured out. I hope I can speak for all of us in this. The blind man in the story is so notable, and I'd invite you to go back and read since my paraphrasing probably wasn't perfect. Read that story. The blind man is so humble. He only knows what, he, what he's experienced. And so he knows that he can see. He knows that Jesus was his healer, and that, that's what he claims. He doesn't claim to know more than that. He simply repeats the simple truth he knows. And so I would invite us to know that we don't have to be experts in our faith to be shepherds. In fact, the ability to say, I don't know, might be one of the most important things we can do as we're inviting people to, the, to Jesus. You might say, I don't know why your child is sick, but I do know that I've found comfort in taking my heartbreak to Jesus every time. I don't know why you struggle with addiction, but I know that the God I worship is a God who loves you and me both unconditionally. The words I don't know could be a powerful opening into someone's life. And so I invite us to think about that as we are shepherding, to remember we don't have to be experts. Okay, um, that was a little bit of a soapbox for me, so I'm getting off of that. And we're going to move on, because sheep don't just need security, and they don't just need rest. They also need food and water, which aren't found usually in their pen. They've usually quickly eaten all the grass and grain that might be found there. And so a good shepherd knows that they can't just stay in the safety of the pen. They have to go out. They have to go out that gate and through sometimes miles of pasture to find water, especially in Jesus' time. Water was often eight to ten miles away from the pen where they would keep their sheep. So Jesus talks about the safety of the sheep pen, but he also talks about leading sheep out of the gate to find pasture. What does he mean by this? This would be the source of sustenance and life for the sheep. For the Pharisees, they're so concerned with the safety of the law, they neglect to lead the people out to find food. You might say they neglect to teach the people how the law actually can live in their life, in not a constricting way, but in a life-giving way. I I get sad because the, they were so concerned that this blind man had been healed on the wrong day that they forget that now this blind man, for the first time, could study the Torah for himself, could learn to read and write, and they have the skills to teach him, but they've missed it. 
as we think about applying this to our lives, you'll remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. This is sort of the crux of this point here. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Who never, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Where do you get your food? Where do you lead others to drink? And there are some obvious places people find in our city to go for food and water, quote unquote, for nourishment. It's, bar, it's the, sort of the usual places like bars and clubs, but it's also skiing and hiking every weekend. It's um, just climbing gyms and CrossFit gyms. We, and those aren't bad places, don't hear me saying that necessarily. But there are places where all of us are finding sustenance that aren't necessarily in Christ. And even in our Christian culture, we do this. And we did talk about this a few weeks ago with I am the bread of life. Where we go to church so many times a year, we read our Bibles every day, we check it off a list, we volunteer so many times a month, and that becomes our nourishment instead of the actual living, breathing relationship with Christ. And so... This is where I would caution us. Even as Christians, we do this. We find nourishment in things that aren't Jesus. And I'll give you a story to sort of illustrate this. When I was a freshman in college at SPU, I was placed on a dorm floor with like just 11 other girls. I think it was the smallest in all of SPU. And at SPU, your floor is kind of your, your people for your first few years because all of us are there to meet new friends. And as a fairly naive 18-year-old girl, uh, I was assuming SPU was going to be this awesome place where everyone was there to uh, to escape the public school life and to be in a Christian community and growing our faith together. And the first weekend of college, the time when everyone wants to make friends desperately, my floor mates were the ones getting the whole floor out to the parties at the frats at UW. Nothing against the parties at the frats at UW, necessarily, but I, um, I was shocked and mortified. And so I politely declined and inside was like, well, these girls are obviously not Christians. I mean, I was so judgmental. And, uh, and I was like, sure, they're inviting me a drink- to a drinking and who knows what else party. And so I assume right from the get-go, who these people are, and it was a very long freshman year. In fact, fast forward six months, right before spring break, I have decided that God is calling me to read these girls a strongly worded letter. And so I, (laughs) yep, (laughs) I know. And so I call a meeting, um, or I didn't call the meeting, it was a floor meeting, and I bring this letter, and I read it aloud in front of our RA and everyone about how these girls are not living out their faith. I shamed them for their behavior, basically. Called them all out for being hypocrites. And in a move that was probably best for all involved, a few weeks later, I got to move to a different floor. (laughs) Start over. (laughs) Which was great. For for them and for me. But uh, I was obviously such a black and white person at that point. I knew exactly how you followed Christ. And if you were outside of that, I knew you were not following Christ. And looking back, I'm so mortified, but not because I was necessarily wrong about them, right? I mean, they were, I think, missing out in some ways on their life with Christ. But you know what? I was too. I was, uh, I was missing out on the abundant life Christ was offering, so busy following every rule, doing everything right. 
And it was about finding life in Christ and the freedom it has to offer. And so I was leading these girls, although they weren't following me, but I thought I was leading these girls to Christ. And I, I wasn't. I wasn't pointing them to abundant life. I was pointing them to my set of rules. And here's the thing about this metaphor of a gate. It swings open. It invites us to enter into the safety of a fence and then to wander out and find nourishment and freedom in the wilderness. And when the Pharisees mess up so badly with the blind man, it's because they can't see themselves leaving the safety of their rules about the Sabbath to enjoy the miracle of healing. The prophet Ezekiel also used the metaphor of sheep and shepherds. It wasn't Jesus's invention necessarily. This is a common way the scriptures speak to us. And he spoke to Israel's leaders about their treatment of the people, much like Jesus is. Uh, and if you are interested in turning there, Ezekiel comes right after Lamentations in your Bible. The prophet says in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 2, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds and clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. In other words, you haven't been shepherds at all. And so if we're truly finding our security in Christ, then we have the freedom to venture beyond the walls of rules and fears and help people find sustenance and nourishment right where they are. And then come back and enter through this gate that we have in Christ. And so I think to start, we have to know this firsthand in our relationship with Christ. How, what does that abundant life feel like? We have to have tasted it. And then we can help others taste it. And it's about finding Jesus not only in the pages of Scripture or in our prayer corners at home, but in the wilderness of our city, in our world. But this leads us to the last point, because Jesus mentions multiple times in John 10 that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. It's one of my favorite, I don't know why even, but there's this beautiful image to that. And it's the, this is a beautiful thing about sheep. It's true. Sheep actually are able to, under, to pick out the voice of their shepherd. They can be hanging out with all their sheep buddies at a watering hole from all different shepherds, and if their shepherd calls their name, those sheep will go. It's kind of amazing. I learned this this week. And so my final question for us this morning is in two parts. Do we know and recognize the voice of Jesus when we hear it? Part one. And part two, do we know the voice we're teaching? our children and our neighbors and our friends to listen to? Is it our own ideas and opinions, or is it the voice of Jesus himself? And so let's take part one first. How do you listen to Jesus' voice? How do you recognize it? This is a, a question I as a pastor, Jack as a pastor, have gotten a lot. And of course, I've asked it myself. People ask, how, I've never heard God speaking to me. How do you hear that? Or they'll say, how do you know when it is God speaking and not just the voice in my head? And they're really good questions people are asking. Because there's a, there's a lot of noise, if you haven't noticed, in our lives. 
And this is not something most of us even learned, learned growing up. Even if we grew up in the church, we didn't necessarily learn how to hear for ourselves the voice of God speaking. There's the key to sheep, when the sheep can hear the shepherd's voice and distinguish it from other shepherds, what do you think the key is? It's time. It's lots of time with the shepherd that's theirs. And so this is the maybe cop-out answer, but spending time with Jesus is part of that ability. And not just necessarily spending time reading scripture, not just necessarily spending time in prayer, but actually listening. What is Jesus speaking? And it can be in lots of ways. It can be climbing as you're climbing that mountain or at CrossFit. It can be as you're driving your kids home from school or as you're standing at the copy machine at work. God, what are you saying to me now? It's just stopping to listen, spending that time. And it can be reading scripture. Hear me, that's one of the most powerful ways I've heard Jesus speak. But not just to check it off your list, to literally read the Bible and say, God, what are you speaking to me in this? And finally, it can be through others. So the caution, and maybe alarm bells go off in your heads, because we've had examples of people who have heard the voice of God and gone and done what they thought they were supposed to do, and it was not God speaking, right? And so the power of our community around us is not to be underestimated. We do need to learn to hear God speaking to us, but we also need to learn to check that voice with our community. And small groups are one of the best ways we do that. Two people, three people, four people, whatever that looks like. And you may struggle to hear Jesus at first if this is new for you. There's a lot of noise to drown out. It's kind of like a muscle that you have to learn how to flex. And so God desires us to be in relationship with him. I believe if he, if we faithfully ask him to speak so that we can hear, he will. And so ask him to speak so that you can hear. And then have patience and ask for help. The sheep's lives were at stake when the shepherd's voice spoke. If they didn't obey that shepherd's voice, they could be run off a cliff. They could be subject to being stolen by a wolf nearby, right? And so we need to have the humility to not only believe that God will speak to us, but also to know that we'll obey when he speaks, which is sometimes the harder part. To obey what we hear. If we don't, we run the risk of listening to voices that will suck us back into the slavery of sin, of addiction, of insecurity, right? Of lying and cheating and fear. These things that draw us away from that abundant life Jesus has promised. So only if we're in the process of learning to listen better and better to the voice of Jesus can we lead others to do the same. So we have this privilege, though, with our neighbors and friends, with our own kids especially, and the kids we might serve in our community. We have this privilege of teaching people the voice of God. Jesus is begging the Pharisees to understand they've missed out on an opportunity to invite this blind man to the fullness of life Jesus has offered. God is offering them. And so we need to listen for the voice of Jesus in our lives and then listen for that voice, especially is offering hope and love 
and joy, and it will also offer hard words to us. God's voice will sometimes convict us, as many of us know. It can be a harsh word sometimes, but it is never a word that is offering shame. It's never, that voice is never Jesus. It always is a voice that is laced with forgiveness and grace. And if you're not hearing that voice, you are not hearing Jesus. Jesus has come that we might have life, he says. And not just us in this room, but this world, that this world may have life, that our city might have life. And that if we keep this good life to ourselves, we just, if we decide who's supposed to enjoy it and who isn't, then we've tried to become our own gate, right? Jesus is the gate to this life. Not us. Not our rules. Jesus is the only way to experience the abundance that is available to us as God's children. And so we're invited to be both shepherds and, as we'll learn more next week, to be sheep who follow our one true shepherd. And that humility, actually, of being both is what allows us to show others who Christ is. So we're going to respond this morning. I have this door over here that Jack actually found a few years ago on the side of the road. And he had the foresight to stick it in his truck. It was, I think it had a free sign on it. I, um, and he had the foresight to put, his, put it into his truck and take it home. <laughs> and I want us to respond to this warning using this as kind of a visual help. And so you found a blue sheet of paper, just a little cutout of paper on your chair. And my encouragement to every one of us is to write down one person or group of people for whom you're a shepherd right now, for whom you are a influence right now for Christ. And then I'd invite you, as we finish in our last two songs, to take that slip and put it, there's lots of magnets, put it on this door and ask Jesus to show you how to point those people to him as the gate to abundant life or the door to abundant life. As the musicians come back up, I'll pray for us. And then you can come forward, and as you're ready, leave a name. And with that, a prayer for God to show you how to be one who shepherds through the gate that is him. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you are offering the most precious thing there is to us, God. You're offering yourself and in you abundant life. God, I think all of us in this room are eager and, and desiring to taste more and more of what you mean by that. Help us to understand, God, how much you love us and how that love frees us to live in this life with no fear. God, free to wander in and out of you, of you, your gate, so that we can be ministers in your world and offer this abundant life, God, not only for ourselves and our families, but for this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.